Jesus, I pray that that would be so true of us, that we can say with integrity of heart that our lives are simply all about you because it is not about us. It's not about me and my selfish ways. It's about you. And we are here this morning to focus on you. So continue to prepare our hearts, open our minds, and through the power of the Holy Spirit, speak through me to build your church. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Take a seat. I'm going to begin this morning talking about what I call the consumer Christian. In 303 AD, the Roman emperor at the time was Diocletian. I knew everybody in here knew that because you are uh, Roman history buffs. But he initiated what uh, is called or was called the Great Persecution of Christians. Now, the great persecution continued after his death through the reign of the next emperor, Galerius. Now, the bloodshed from this persecution was so great, folks, that even the pagans themselves were sickened. Sentiment towards Christians began to change, and in 311 AD, Roman Emperor Galerius died. But with no appointed successor, a struggle for imperial power broke loose. And in the spring of 312 AD, Constantine, the son of Constantine Chlorus, advanced across the Alps to defeat his rival Maxentius from Italy and to capture Rome. But this was a great gamble. Because his military was inferior in size to Maxentius. And when they met at the historic Milvian Bridge, just outside the walls of Rome, Constantine, as you may recall, he turned for help to the God of the Christians. In a dream, he saw a cross in the sky and the words, in this sign, conquer. This convinced him to advance, and on October 18th, 31280, he defeated his rival and became the next Roman emperor. He was the first Roman emperor to look upon Christianity with favor. He looked upon his success at the battle at the Milvian Bridge of the power of Christ and the superiority of the Christian religion. Christianity, which up to that point in history was considered suspect in the eyes of the government and the empire, all of a sudden became politically correct. This opened the door to pagans filling the church with no real desire to follow Christ, but rather to gain political favor. The church, which had always met in small groups from house to house. Remember that in Acts 5, 42? They met from house to house. Guess what? The church now had access to large buildings. In what at first glance seemed like a positive change for the church would turn out to severely cripple the church's effectiveness. This structural change that Constantine inadvertently initiated 
was devastating. And here is Constantine's structure. You might remember this from years ago. I talked about this. You can see that. That people go to a building. They're not meeting small groups anymore. A cathedral or church. On a special day of the week. For us it's Sunday. And someone, a priest or a pastor, does something to them. Teaching, preaching, absolution, or healing. Or for them, a ritual or entertainment for a price. We call offering. That was initiated, that structure, in 312 AD. Again, how was the church meeting prior to this? House to house. Looks familiar, right? Now, this results, or the results of this structural change were, were dramatic. Uh, church membership was redefined. The church, you, became an audience. Because if you're in a small group, it's hard to sit there and be quiet, right? The term Christian was turned upside down. And the church became a channel for the distribution of its resources to members rather than challenging members to themselves become resources. In other words, what you give, I pour back or the church pours back into you. It's not being poured back into others outside the church. And the purpose of the church is to equip you for what? Works of service. So all the resources we have, you need to yourself become a resource and reach out to other people. The church then became extremely limited in its ability to nurture new members, to apply spiritual power, to edify the body, to train leaders, to take the gospel to the world. In the moment a new believer opened the door of a church, they stepped into a system that they did not develop and cannot do anything but turn them into a spiritual parasite. This structural change has been unchecked for 1,800 years. This change is happening today. What impact does it have on the church in the 21st century? Well, it helped create in the 20th and 21st century a new type of Christian, the consumer Christian. How many of you have heard of that phrase before? I've certainly mentioned it. Well, this is the consumer Christian in today's church. He is a target audience of the 20th and 21st century church. This is why churches have broken down into either a church that is attractional or entertainment-centered, or it is not. It's traditional. The whole thing with the, the black background, the videos, and the rock concert worship, and the coffee shops, and all that, what, what, are, what are they doing? What, what, why is the church doing that? Track people in, and also to hold their attention long enough so they stay awake for the message. The building that I built, I, the church in Indiana, it wasn't going anywhere until a leader came in and put it on his shoulders and got it done, and that was me, working with the builder design and, and, and so on. We had the coffee shop, we had the black stage with all the lighting, theater, you know, it was, it was it's that model. It's a target audience. The consumer Christian uh, makes up 80% of the body of Christ 
experts believe. And the consumer Christian has an unwritten contract with the church to be pampered, ministered to, and entertained in exchange for being counted in the pews from time to time, to give money occasionally, but only to support a system that is going to meet his or her needs. This means that the consumer Christian is anything but a neutralizing factor in the ministry of the church. I could bring this topic up at our monthly Auburn pastors meeting and we all the pastors would say the same thing of what I'm telling you this morning. It's the same issue that we dealt with in Indiana. It's American culture. We're consumers. And the Christians consume in the church. And this means that the consumer Christian is anything but a neutralizing factor in the ministry of the church. In fact, the consumer Christian represents the church's most debilitating factor. Well, how? Well, if 80% of the church is consuming, that means that 20% of the church is doing what? They're giving, they're serving, they're maturing, okay? They are having to maintain a system that will keep Mr. and Mrs. Consumer and all their little consumers happy. And no matter how many producing or serving Christians it takes, you can expect a low return on effort, time, and money because a consumer Christian gives little, if anything, back to the real life and ministry of the church. Now, what does a consumer Christian look like? And this is not the focus, this is just the introduction of the sermon, by the way. Well, you've heard this story before, and for those of you that haven't, you really like this, and hopefully you remember this, but the consumer Christian looks like the man who was stranded on an island alone for many years. One day a ship passing by discovers the stranded man and stops to rescue him. And upon arriving on the island, the captain of the ship meets the man, finds out that this man has been stranded on this island alone for years, but is puzzled why there are three huts. Curious, the captain inquires about the huts. And the man's response, well, the hut on the left is where I live. The hut in the middle is where I go to church. And the hut on the right is where I used to go to church. That's a consumer Christian. The consumer Christian, and, and I've talked to these people, and the people in the church know about it, they go from church to church that best meets his or her needs and the needs of the family. And because they grew up in the church, they can give spiritual-sounding reasons to justify their migration to greener pastures. We love the teaching of the pastor of this church, or we love the style of worship at this new younger church, or we're concerned about the spiritual education of our kids. This other church has a better children's ministry. If someone says that to me, I would gladly open the door to those people because guess what? It ain't going to work at any church. It's your responsibility as a parent to build into your children. That's God's design. See, the consumer Christian looks like the person that has been in the church for 30 years. They grew up going to Sunday school. They were a spectator in worship, but they can't pray in public. They don't know how to minister to people, and they will never, ever share their faith. They leave no vacancy in the life or ministry of the church. Just one less spot in the pew, a little less money in the offering, and one less purpose for the church leadership to have to pamper and please. I don't buy into that. (laughs) 
I don't pamper and please. I will push. Either push you to serve or push you to leave. Because that's who we are. And you know that about me by now. But the defining characteristic, and this is where we get to the sermon, of the consumer Christian is a cafeteria view of churches. See, you pick and choose, right? You pick and choose. And this is one way people leave a church. And churches across America often grow, by the way, not through new conversions, not through people coming to Christ. Like we see in the New Testament, daily God was adding to their, what, numbers, those who were being saved. But they grow through transfer growth of Christians hopping from church to church. But there's another reason why Christians leave churches. And this be whether they are a, a mature, serving, producing Christian or they're a consumer Christian. They leave out of offense. Uh, the majority of this sermon is coming from two books, rather than the Bible. It'll be a book called The Second Reformation by William Beckett, and a book uh, by John Bevere called The Bait of Satan. I'm going to read a, a story to you from that. Um, but before I begin, I want to start off with this verse for you. It's called, this next section of the sermon is called The Critical Deception, but it's this right here. Look at that verse for a moment. Those who are planted in the house of the Lord shall flourish in the courts of our God. Now, what would be the house of the Lord? This is obviously the Old Testament. What would be the house of the Lord today? The church here. You're, those who are planted in the house of the Lord, those who are planted in the church, what does that imply? Longevity, but also that you were planted here, right? Meaning God planted you in his church, right? And his purpose for you is what? To flourish. Think of the other term in the New Testament is to be fruitful. You are to bear fruit. He's looking for fruit from your life. You're to bear fruit in his house, in the courts of God, okay? That being said, I mentioned John Bevere. The full title of the book is called The Bait of Satan Living Free from the Deadly Trap of Offense. I want you to just listen for the next few minutes. It's his story of how he left one of the churches he had been attending for years. Since I was at church for several years, the pastor was one of the best preachers in America. When I first attended that church, I would sit with my mouth open in awe of the biblical teaching that came from his mouth. Oh, I wish that would happen to me here. It was a joke. I'm trying to struggle to keep you guys awake. As time passed, because of my petition, position of serving the pastor, I was close enough to see his flaws. I questioned some of his ministry decisions. I became critical and judgmental, and all, an offense set in, meaning in his heart. He preached, and I sensed no inspiration or anointing. His preaching no longer ministered to me. Another couple of years, or another couple who were our friends, and also on staff at the church, seemed to be discerning the same thing. Well, God sent them out from the church, and they started their own ministry. They asked us to go with them. They knew how we were struggling. They encouraged us to get on with the call in our lives. 
They would tell us all the things this pastor, his wife, and the leadership were doing wrong. We would commiserate together, feeling hopeless and trapped. They seemed sincerely concerned for our welfare, but our discussion only fueled our fire of discontent and offense. As Proverbs 26.20 illustrates, where there is no wood, the fire goes out, and where there is no tailbearer, strife ceases. What they were saying to us may have been correct information, but it was wrong in the eyes of God because it was adding wood to the fire of offense in them as well as in us. We know you're a man of God, they said to me. That's why you're having the problems you're having in this place. It sounded good. My wife and I said to each other, that is it. We're in a bad situation. We need to get out. This pastor and his wife love us. They will pastor us. The people in their church will receive us in the ministry God has given us. We left our home church and began attending this couple's church, but only for a few short months. Even though we thought we had run from our problems, we noticed that there was still a struggle for us. Our spirits had no joy. We were bound to a fear of becoming what we had just left. It seemed everything we did was forced and unnatural. We couldn't fit into the flow of the Spirit. Now even our relationship with the new pastor and his wife was strained. Finally, I knew we should return to our home church. When we did, we knew at once we were back in the will of God. Even though it appeared that we would be more accepted and loved elsewhere. Then God shocked me. He said, John, I never told you to leave this church. You left out of offense. This was not the fault of the other pastor and his wife, but ours. They understood our frustration were trying to resolve the same issues in their own hearts. When you're out of the will of God, you will not be a blessing or help to any church. When you're out of the will of God, even the good relationships will be strained. We've been out of God's will. Offended people react to the situation and do things that appear right, even though they are not inspired by God. We are not called to react, but to act. If we are being to God and have sought him, and he is not speaking, then do you know what the answer is? He's probably saying, stay right where you are. Don't change a thing. Often when we feel pressure, we look for a word from God to bring us relief, but God puts us in these very uncomfortable crucibles to mature, refine, and strengthen us, not to destroy us. Within one month, now this is critical, within one month, I had the opportunity to meet with the pastor of my original church. I repented of being critical and rebellious, and he graciously forgave me. Now think about that. He wasn't necessarily spreading division or gossip or anything, but he had a heart issue that was a barrier between him and the Lord and him and this man, and he had to go and confess that to that pastor. He obeyed God. So our relationship was strengthened, and joy returned to my heart. I immediately started to receive the pastor's ministry from the pulpit again, 
and I remained in that church for years. And guess what? All of a sudden, those sermons started to speak to him again. And it wasn't the fault of the pastor. Sometimes it is, and sometimes it's not. Now, the psalmist David made a profound connection between offense, the law of God, and our spiritual growth. You might recognize this in Psalm chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and his law he meditates day and night. So the blessed man, by the way, this is often used what we call a beatitude attitude. So what Matthew chapter 5, what you see in Psalm 1 is, is kind of a mere image of the teaching of Jesus on the Beatitudes in the Sermon on the Mount. So notice the blessed man is defined by what he doesn't do. He doesn't walk, stand, or sit in the seat of sinners. He's, there's not a, a comfortability with sin. But he's also defined by what he does, and what does he do? His delight is in the law of the Lord, and he, in his law he meditates day and night. Now, I want you to watch what that delight in the law of God does for the blessed man. Look at this next verse. You should probably memorize this. Great peace have they which love or delight thy law, and nothing shall offend them. So if you are offended easily, clearly what's the antidote? Do you speak English? If you are, no, if you are offended easily, then what's the, the cure? What's the antidote? Delight in the law of God. And how will you delight in the law of God? You should meditate on it day and night. You love it. You love the law of God. You love it. Guess what? You will have great peace. Does anyone here want peace in their life? And notice it's not just peace, by the way. What kind of peace is it? It's great peace. Whatever that means, it's great peace. It's a protective, overwhelming peace that you have, okay? And you're not, you don't get offended easily. Now watch this. He will be like a tree firmly planted, go back to Psalm 1, by streams of water, which yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither, and in whatever he does, he prospers. So if you meditate on the law of God, you have great peace, you're not easily offended, but you also successfully endure trials. You see that? You're the Psalm 1 man who delights in the law of God, or woman, delights in the law of God, and you're like a tree, firmly planted. Again, firmly planted. Psalm 92, 13. Planted in the house of God. God firmly plants you, in this case, a tree that is always by a source of water. It will yield its fruit in its season. And again, you are expected to yield fruit. God has invested in you. He's given you gifts and abilities. And when he comes again, when you give an account, your account will be how fruitful were you. Right? You are to, and by the way, you bear fruit. The Holy Spirit produces it in you, but you bear it, you hold it, you carry it. Anyways, it, it's yielding fruit, but watch this. Its leaf does not wither. The only time a leaf withers in a tree is what? 
a lack of water. It's in some sort of trial or test or in a drought, okay? And whatever he does, he prospers. So David's point is clear. A believer who chooses to delight in the word of God in the midst of adversity will avoid being offended. They'll be like a tree whose roots, they, they search deep to where the spirit provides strength and nourishment. nourishment. And watch what this does. This will mature him or her to the point where adversity is now a catalyst for fruit. Let me explain that to you. During our time in Indiana, we became good friends with the Pernardis. Debbie was the one that drove over with us from Indiana to here. You may, may remember meeting her. Our families became very close. Debbie, the mother, served as my director of children's ministry while at Crossview Church in Grable, Indiana. But she also ran a farm with her family. And I never forget this. One summer, if you recall it, we were in a, a, a very dry, hot summer, and, and drought conditions began to set in. Land fell under this, this incredible drought. So I was concerned for, for the family and asked Debbie how the crops were doing, and this just took me back. To my surprise, she wasn't concerned at all. She said that when it rains a lot during the summer, the roots don't go deep into the soil because there's plenty of moisture near the surface. But during a drought, the roots are forced to go deeper to find moisture. She said that this helps strengthen the crops. Now on a side note, everybody hates the thistle weed, right? If you don't, I will pray over you, I will cast out demons over you, because everybody hates the thistle weed, right? You know what the thistle weed is? <coughs> yeah. <coughs> it grows everywhere. Debbie told me once, they dug out a thistle weed whose roots went down six feet. <coughs> six feet. Now you know why thistle seems to grow everywhere. <coughs> it will go deep. But this illuminates our understanding of the parable of the sower. Remember this? <coughs> Excuse me. In a similar way, these are the ones on whom seed was sown on the rocky places. You guys know the parable of the soil, right? You remember that? You just talking about the gospel being spread and, and the farmer going out and throwing the the seed, and it falls on four types of soil. The hard soil by the road that's immediately you know, taken up by birds. You have the rocky soil, the weed soil, and you have the good soil. So the, the seed that falls on the rocky places, who, when they hear the word, so people hear the gospel, immediately they receive it with joy. That's yeah, good news, yeah. But they have no firm root in themselves. They don't grow deep. But only temporary. Then when affliction or persecution arises because of the word, immediately they fall away. Fall away means offended. They get offended. It's that simple. Now here's my point. He's talking about the church here. People hear the, the truth. You receive it to some degree. If it doesn't go deep in you, guess what? When it gets difficult, you get offended and you leave, right? 
You can shake your heads, yes. If you've been in church any amount of time, you're going to experience this. People who leave churches out of offense, they're like a plant whose roots were never allowed to endure the affliction of heat and drought to go deep into the soil to find water. They're like a plant that's uprooted over and over again. Now, what happens to an uprooted plant? What? It dies, yeah. If it survives, by the way, they can occasionally, it, does it bear much fruit? No. Most likely, the roots of this uprooted plant wither and shrink, and the plant dies. Now, similarly, if you avoid conflict, and you leave a church out of offense, you have forfeited the opportunity for God to strengthen you, to mature you, to form your character. And you'll be left with little or no strength to endure hardship or persecution. So it not only weakens you spiritually, but it has another damaging effect in that it makes it easy for you to flee the next time you face adversity. And eventually, and I know people like this that go from church to church. They get offended and they move on. They get offended and they move on. They're not maturing. They're not fruitful. And here's the thing. John said it very clear that Jesus was coming and his axe was where? At the root of the tree. What did that mean? Any tree that does not bear fruit, what does the Father do to it? He cuts it down and it's it burned. The implication is that if you're a believer, you will bear fruit to some degree. I mean, you should be bearing fruit. You should be fruitful. But if you are offended easily and you leave your church, again, who planted you in the church? God plants you. Does he own you? Yes. When do you leave then? When he tells you. But people leave for all various reasons. Some are just consumers, and some leave out of offense. And the person that continues to leave out of offense becomes like Cain. Remember that from last week? We call a spiritual vagabond. That's the King James Version of the word wanderer. So let's talk about a spiritual vagabond. Get your Bibles out. Turn to Genesis chapter 4. Last week, we discussed that Cain was offended. Offended at God, first of all, because God rejected his offering and became angry. In his anger, he murdered his brother Abel. And his punishment from God is found in Genesis chapter 4, verse 12. Do you remember this? When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. Now, Cain would have to eke out a survival, and what was the other part of his punishment? He would never settle down. You see that? So he was a fruitless Wanderer. That's a picture of an unbeliever, or fruitless wanderer. 
From Cain comes a line of unbelievers. Through Abel, and then Seth eventually, comes a line of believers. If you're a believer today here this morning, you're of the line of Seth and Abel and then Adam. Okay? But look at verse 17. It's a rather startling statement. It says, Cain had relations with his wife, and she conceived and gave birth to Enoch. Not the Enoch that was taken up to God, but a different Enoch. And he built a city and called the name of the city Enoch after the name of his son. Now, the Old Testament, for those of you who don't remember or know, was written in Hebrew. And a more accurate translation of the phrase, he built a city, is he was building a city. And the best interpretation of the he in Genesis 4, 17 in the Hebrew construction is that it's not referring to Enoch, it's referring to Cain. So Cain was building a city. Why was he building a city? God had already told him that he was going to spend the remaining years of his life doing what? Wandering, exactly. In rebellion against God, punishment, Cain is attempting to alleviate his curse by building a city where he could dwell and settle down. But what is fascinating about Genesis 4.17 is the Hebrew phrase was building. It implies that Cain was building a little at a time. And one rabbi scholar from the 13th century wrote this, which is very insightful. He said, Cain was erecting a city a little at a time due to his continuous state of wandering that resulted from the divine curse upon him. It was as if he was trying to get this city started so he could lessen the effect of the curse. But he couldn't succeed, so he finally gave up and called the name of the city Enoch after his son. And by naming it after his son, Cain, this this relentless wanderer, was acknowledging that he could not defy God and alleviate the effects of the curse. Because if he was successful, he would have named the city after who? Himself. There is no Cainville. (laughs) All right? Instead, he named it after his son, implying that his son owned it, someone was responsible for it, and his son finished it. In other words, Cain could not escape the consequences of his sin. I know of people who walk in the way of Cain, believers, by the way, who think that they can escape the consequences of their sin. They've left their churches in a state of offense, and they go on to the next church, expecting to get involved in some ministry of the church and experience the same level of joy and fruitfulness that they experienced previously in their ministry. However, instead of joy, they find frustration. Instead of fruitfulness, they find their ministry is barren. And since their ministry was fruitful in their previous church, they reason that there must be something wrong with their current church. So what do they do? They move on to another church. They become a spiritual vagabond. Fruitless wanderers like Cain. And until they stop blaming others, humble themselves, ruthlessly 
examine their own hearts, confess their sin, and repent, they'll remain out of God's will and be found to be an ineffective tool in the hands of God. A spiritual vagabond. Now, we're gonna close with this. How do you leave a church? (laughs) Well, before we begin, I just wanna give you some unbiblical reasons why you leave your current church, why people leave their current church. Chuck Lawless wrote about, in a blog, 11 weak reasons. I only list six of them here. But this is unbiblical reasons to leave a church. Because you don't like the pastor. My wife doesn't like the pastor. (laughs) Okay? My mother-in-law doesn't always like the pastor. I don't like my mother-in-law. But they're still here. All right? And by the way, if he's a good pastor, I know this for a fact because I did, we did studies on this, personality tests. I have the perfect temperament personality for a pastor, I was told, through the personality test. Because we have to be able to take a lot, to be honest with you. Pastors leave, and this is probably outdated information, but it was, um, what was it, 1,800 pastors a month leave the ministry because they're beat up by their congregations. You have to be able to take the punch in the face. You have to be thick-skinned and also have a soft heart. So they don't like the pastor. Uh, Next thing, you don't like the message. Uh, You don't like the worship style. And maybe because your ministry passion is no longer supported. You had some ministry you started, and that was great. For example, one of the biggest ministries that, that blew up in the church and was very popular was Promise Keepers, right? How popular is that now? Not too much. It had its season, right? Uh, Because they asked for money. I know of a church in Auburn that was growing rapidly. They wanted to get rid of debt, so the pastor prayed about it, and he asked the church, and they began a capital campaign to reduce debt. A good thing, right? A third of the church left because of that. How do they leave, by the way? Out of offense. And they're outside of God's will, and I hope they don't come here. And because the church is changing, churches change, folks. They change, they evolve. Here are a few biblical reasons why you should leave your current church. Jesus common sense stuff. They teach false doctrine. Okay? The church in Pergamum in Revelation chapter 2, I mean, if everyone talk about what to look for in a church, what not to look for in a church, there's a pattern that, that Jesus is talking to seven churches. Starts off with a description of who Jesus is. It goes into something positive of the church and then what's wrong with the church. Only one church was commended for doing a good job and nothing negative was said about it. Do you remember what church that was? Church of Philadelphia, I believe it was. The church of Ben Gavin had some issues. Here's what it says in Revelation 2, 14 to 16. But I have a few things against you, Jesus says, because you have some there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, 
who kept teaching Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel to eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit acts of immorality. So you also have some who in the same way hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore repent, he says, or else I am coming to you quickly and I will make war against them with the sword of my mouth. If God is making war against your church, do you think that's a good thing? They tolerated. There's false teaching there. The leadership is guiding the church down a path of sin. In Hebrews 13, 17, it says this, Obey your leaders and submit to them. They keep watch over your souls as those who would give an account. You may recall that the word submit here is the military term for submit. There are two words for submit in the Bible, basically. The word for submit between the husband and wife is a different word than the word for submit to the parent-child relationship, to the employer-employee relationship, into the church leadership and member relationship. The word for a husband and wife to submit, you're equals, but the wife is called in her role to willingly submit to the leadership of her husband, okay? The other word for submit with the parent-child, with the employee-employer or the slave and master, and in the church leadership versus the church tender, it's a different word, and it means that the superior, in this case it would be the church leadership, to the inferior, the church members. The superior, the employer, the inferior, the employee. That relationship by God, by the way, the submission you're supposed to have to us is that even if you ask a question, we're not inclined to answer you. That's the strength of that word. God believes in a chain of command, a hierarchy. But if we as a church, in leading the, the church into sin, you do not follow. Because who ultimately is the head of the church? Jesus is. And therefore, it'd be a, uh, a reason to leave your church. You can have a continued toleration of sin. To the church in Thyatira, in Revelation chapter 220, says this, by this against you, that you tolerate the woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess. She teaches and leads my bondservants astray so that they commit acts of immorality neat things, sacrificed to house. There were great things this church was doing. They persevered and so on, and yet they tolerated this sin. This was a problem with the church that I came from. Remember the story? For 30 years, I was told, this older generation determined the destiny of this church, and all they wanted to do was play church. And they couldn't get to the new location until they brought, in their words, a new sheriff in town, and that was me. And I would not bow to this older group's demands. And of course, remember what they tried to do to me? They tried to vote me out and so on. After I left that church, it was the denomination president and myself, we were meeting and talking, and he said, you know, Chris, one of the reasons why I, I look back in your ministry at Crossview that you were there was that you were there to take down that older group. They have no power anymore in that church. But you know why they had power? Because this church avoided conflict like the plague. And it, it made for a very unhealthy church. So you can continue, and there are churches that, that tolerate sin. If that's the case, then you leave. Uh, you can have a desire to be with friends in the faith. There's some biblical examples, but I like to think of Terry and Vicki Sabo. Remember them? 
were here for years. He served in the church. They left here, on good terms, by the way. But where'd they go? To help their son start a new church. They wanted to be with their family, their friends. That's a good reason to go, okay? Flee persecution, Matthew 10, 23. But whenever they persecute you in one city, flee to the next. For truly I say to you, you will not finish going to the cities of Israel until the Son of Man comes. Persecution happens in a, in a, a place. You've got to leave that church. Paul had to leave places because of persecution. And they're finding there can be irreconcilable differences. Then Paul and Barnabas it isn't the best example, but they disagreed over Mark, who wrote the Gospel of Mark. They had good reasons for it. They just couldn't be together anymore, so they had to split. But maybe even more importantly, well, how do I leave a church? Like, how do you leave well? Have you ever had any sermons on this, by the way? Because people are going to leave. By the way, I, I, mean, I could add another reason not to leave church because of a global pandemic. Well, it begins with God. This is how you leave. If God planted you in his house, Psalm 92, 13, then only he can uproot you successfully and plant you in another part of his house. Right? Then you would engage, if you sense God calling you to move on, engage in self-examination. You do this once a month here. When? When you take communion. Think of Matthew 7, 1 through 5. Don't judge others. And why are you judging? You have what? You look at the speck in someone else's eye, you have the log in your own eye. Take it out, look, examine your own life, clean your life up. Then you'll be able to see clearly how to help someone else. So self-examine, why do I sense God calling to move on? Then determine the reason, seek godly counsel. I sense God saying, just let me talk to a friend or two that I know and see what they think and, and so on. Then wait for God to release you. I almost put this verse up there because this is a verse that always comes to my mind whenever I'm having a conversation with someone and leaving a church. How will you know when God releases you? Well, Isaiah 55, 12 says this, for you will go out with joy and be led forth with peace. There should be an overwhelming sense of peace that's time for you to move on. Then, you have, you've gone through these steps, then honor the church leadership. That means you come to my office, you talk to me, or you talk to one of the elders. You tell them the process you went through. You sense God calling you to move on. And by the way, if you do this, and you get kicked back from the leadership of your church, then go. Because the church should be about the will of God above all else. Not about any numbers or any money. And then, we call follow due process. What I like to do is then we like to pray over you, either you know, privately or bring you up before the church. God's called you to move on. We're going to celebrate with you, miss you, pray over you, and send you out. That's how you leave a church well. But you don't leave because you're a consumer Christian and you just want to get something more. You're not being entertained enough. And you don't leave out of offense. You do that, you become a spiritual vagabond, a wanderer. And so I'd like for you this morning to just meditate on Psalm 92, 13. This morning and in the rest of the day and this week. 
think about where you are in your church and are you flourishing, are you fruitful, and what do you need to do that may help you become more fruitful. Amen? All right, so now you can go home and tell your family and friends, I heard a message on how to leave a church. <laughs> Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time this morning. As we go, we worship you. Uh, I pray that our worship would continue. Thank you for your, your, what you taught us. I pray that you be glorified in and through us the rest of this week until we meet again. And all God's people said, amen. Have a great Sunday.